Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by our proud title sponsor, NHL Sense Arena, the next generation of off-ice hockey training for players and goalies. Look, we know how much you invest in your children's hockey development, the early mornings, the travel, and let's not forget the expenses of training for hockey camps, private ice time, the general expenses of the season. It's a lot. But wouldn't it be great to bring that on-ice practice experience home that's fun, fits into your schedule, and that's affordable? If you said yes, which I'm sure you did, you've got to check out NHL Sense Arena. It's a top-tier virtual reality training game that brings the on-ice practice experience home so you can practice anytime and anywhere, literally. You can transform any part of your home into a virtual ice rink where you're getting unlimited access to over 100 drills, training plans from top coaches and players, weekly drill challenges, and more that focus on improving hockey sense and physical cognitive skills, starting at just $33 per month. That is a lot cheaper than an hour of ice time. The physical side of hockey gets a lot of attention, but we don't focus enough on the mental side of it. It's something we talk about on this show all the time. NHL Sense Arena provides an immersive solution for players to sharpen those skills when ice time is limited or not affordable and they want to get those extra reps in. So for our listeners, NHL Sense Arena is offering an exclusive $50 off their annual plan all you got to do is head over to their website, hockey.sensorina.com. Again, hockey.sensorina.com and use our code hockey never stops and you'll level up your off-ice training by using NHL Sensorina. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us and NHL Sensorina. Enjoy this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this very special edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. We have a great guest for you today. It's a really special episode. He is the NHL's most tenured referee. He has refed more regular season games, more playoff games, and more Stanley Cup finals than anybody else. It is, of course, the famous Kerry Frazier. And we have him on today to talk about officiating both at the professional level, but all, both at the youth level as well. So it's a really great conversation. He has some amazing stories. He leads off with Gretzky. So obviously stay tuned for that. Also note that this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey is powered by Hockey Wraparound. Head over to HockeyWraparound.com and use the code OKPH for 20% off your entire purchase. You can check out the world's number one stick blade protector or their new product, the Dry Stick, uh, which is really simple. It's four little mini sticks that attach to your kids or your hockey stick. It uh, changes how equipment is dried, and it just makes it very compatible, very portable. Uh, my kid's using it with no problem. Uh, it's really changing how we think about drying equipment uh, while on the move or in a small space. So check it out at HockeyWrapAround.com. Again, OKPH for 20% off your purchase. But above all, enjoy this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey with Kerry Frazier. Hello, hockey friends and families around the world, and welcome to another edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. I'm Lee Elias, and I'm joined as always by my good friends, Christy Casciano Burns and Mike Benelli. And our guest today is one of the most famous and tenured referees in NHL history. His career consists of 1,904 regular season games, 12 Stanley Cup finals, and over 261 playoff games. He is the author of The Final Call, Hockey Stories from a Legend in Stripes. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to have with us today the one and only Kerry Fraser. Kerry, <laughs> welcome to the show. Well, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. And since you mentioned it, I thought I'd pop it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now, for Great. those of you listening to this podcast, Mike uh, just held up a nice little uh, promotional piece for your book, which is excellent, by the way, available on Amazon. That is a plug. Uh, but, Kerry, let's jump right into it. Uh, you're known for being a ref. 
But the truth is you had just as much hockey upbringing as anybody. You grew up in a backyard rink in Sarnia, uh, Ontario, before playing Junior A hockey. Just tell us a little bit about your hockey life as a player before we jump into your life as a Stripes and uh, refereeing as a whole. Well, we were certainly a hockey family. My father uh, played professional hockey, minor pro hockey, back when there were six teams in the NHL. He played in the International Hockey League. He played as a 19-year-old over in the Scottish International Hockey League, which were all Canadian players. They had a training camp at Maple Leaf Gardens, and uh, Dad made the league, and they went over on a ship, and uh, he enjoyed uh, a year playing over there. Uh, my dad uh, was a really tough individual. Uh, he was a little man with forearms like Popeye and anchors in his hand. I mean, he was, and he was also a boxer. Uh, I guess in the days of, of uh, the IHL, uh, he would be called a goon. He was the guy <laughs> that fought a lot. He was also a boxer, which really, you know, kind of went hand in hand in those days, certainly. Um, the thing with, uh, with dad is uh, I got, he was, he was a very aggressive individual as well. Now, I'm one of two, my youngest brother, Rick, two years younger than me, uh, who passed, by the way, uh, uh, from uh, abdominal cancer in November. Uh, sadly, uh, with COVID, uh, it was uh, just FaceTime that uh, we were able to connect on a regular basis. Rick was a terrific player. He was drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks and uh, the Indianapolis Racers. He played in the World Hockey uh, and then became a firefighter back in our hometown of Sarnia. But our hockey family and mom was the only lady in the house, uh, but she was the one that kept us organized. She was uh, there when dad played pro. Uh, she used to yell at the referees uh, along with the other wives at that time. And uh, I had no aspiration to become a referee. But I will tell you, like most Canadian kids, we wanted to be NHL players. I was a good little player. Uh, in the toughness end, and hockey can be a big man's game, and it can be very intimidating, certainly back in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, as we saw at the NHL level, everything else was the same all the way down uh, to the junior level uh, in Canada, certainly, uh, and even lower than that. I played three years of AAA midget for my dad. My dad taught me how to take care of myself, to protect myself, to fight when I was about 12 years old. He taught me in the kitchen. Being the boxer he was, got me to get my hands up. He knocked me down, boom, several times before I recognized that I had to get my hands up, defend, and counterpunch. When I played three years of AAA midget for dad, we had terrific teams. We won all Ontario championships. We had five players off our team go on and play in the NHL. Wayne Merrick won four Stanley Cups with the New York Islanders. Uh, Bob Neely, First pick of the uh, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, six foot one, probably one ninety when we were playing midget. But I was the guy that Dad would tap on the shoulder and say, "Go take care of business." He taught me how to fight, and I could fight better scared than most big guys could. Mad, and uh, I will tell you uh, uh, one particular incident that occurred. And parents, this is this is for you. Uh, this is the kind of influence that you can have, negative as well as positive. I'm gonna look at this as a negative situation uh, in the sense that uh, we were playing in a uh, uh, silver blade tournament. It was the aftermath of silver stick. Uh, we were in the final game against a team from Michigan. 
big dirty defenseman on this team was sticking our players he was nasty my dad being the disciplined coach said guys don't take any penalties be disciplined win the game which we were up like by at least five goals with five minutes left to play game well in hand dad walked down the bench he tapped me on the shoulder said go teach that big guy a lesson he's a bully i went out and i speed bagged him with both hands i cut him over both eyes I could fight better scared and they could mad, as I mentioned, and we were thrown out of the game. Well, I'm in the dressing room getting undressed and our team came in. We won the championship. Everybody's excited and happy. And I heard this argument out in the hallway and I could hear my dad's voice. All of a sudden, the dressing room door opened. Dad slipped in. He locked the door. He came over to me, put his arm around me and he said, listen, Carrie, I'm really proud of the way you taught that bully a lesson. He, did, he needed it. I said, while you took care of the son, I don't think you can beat his mother. She's out there waiting for you to come out of the dressing room. I said, he said, we've got to get you out of this dressing room somehow. I said, okay. He said, get dressed. You see that stick bag over there? He said, I want you to get in it. I was five foot seven, 115 pounds. I got in the stick bag, Dad zipped it up threw me over his shoulder and carried me out past the lady as she was looking at all the faces of our players that walked by. That's what I'm talking about, parents, where while he gave me a toughness and a respect for the game and a work ethic, I took that to the junior A level. I fought every big guy on every team I played, and I established myself as a guy that showed up. Now, transitioning into refereeing, I still had that internal combustion engine that was ingrained in me from the time I was little. And it was from dad, it was from the schoolyard, it was from my participation in all different sports, and it wasn't going to serve me well as a referee in the National Hockey League. I had to recognize, and it happened in the very first game I had with Wayne Gretzky, and I showed him that night, I taught Wayne a lesson because he started diving on the very first shift and I was going to make them pay for it. Well, at the end of that game, I had a reflection, uh, if you will. Uh, I replayed every game that I ever did. I wanted to be the best that I could be, and I recognized that I had compromised my own personal integrity, the rules, uh, by not calling penalties that happened on Wayne because I became emotionally involved. I searched even deeper and found inside me, I had the little man syndrome. I had chip on my shoulder. And it served me well as a little player, but it was going to absolutely cause me to fail as a referee. I had to change, and thank God I did. And thankfully, it was Wayne Gretzky that uh, showed me that night uh, that I needed to do some things differently. Uh, I apologized to Wayne for not calling penalties on him. He actually thanked me at the end of the game uh, for calling a penalty on him uh, with uh, less than a minute or a minute and a half left in a game against uh, Bobby Clark and the Broad Street Bullies. Philadelphia Flyers in that game um, because I called absolutely nothing uh, that happened on Wayne in that game after he took the first dive 15 seconds into the game, jumped in the air, turned his head to look at me to see if I was going to raise my arm even before he hit the ice. Obviously, the pond was frozen. There was no splash. And this little man syndrome took over and, and the crowd at Northlands Coliseum was on me. And it was like, I'll show you, buddy. I'm not going to be intimidated by them or you. So minute and a half left. <clears throat> Kelly Lindbergh caught the puck. I blew the whistle, stopped play. 
Wayne, in his office behind the net where he always stood, jumped in the air, threw his hands out one way, his feet out the other way, boom, did a belly flop on the ice. Bobby Clark skated over to him with the no teeth. He said, get up, Gretzky, you blank baby. <laughs> I went over. I said, Wayne, what are you doing? I said, there wasn't a guy within 15 feet of you. He said, you wouldn't have called it anyway. You haven't called a blank thing all night. I said, you're right. I'm going to start right now. Boom, you got two for unsportsmanlike conduct. He said, thanks. It's about effing time you called something. And he stormed to his dressing room. Now that was, you know, maybe people think it's a funny moment. But for me in reflection, not funny at all. And that was my come to Wayne moment after that first <laughs> encounter with him. And I got better from it. Unbelievable. Such a great story. <laughs> yeah, and you've always told that story that so one. well. No, I, I love, you know, what's amazing, Carrie, and, and we're going to dive deep into refereeing. So for those of you listening to the show today, this man has no shortage of amazing stories. Uh, I've heard many of them, and we could honestly spend hours on that. But uh, per Carrie's request, we do want to jump into officiating today. We want to talk into parenting, coaching, and really draw on your experience uh, in the game, Carrie, to, to educate our audience. But, you know, what the story you just told, I love because, um, you know, thankfully, honestly, it happened earlier on in your career. Right. And, and the key word here is ego, right? Um, you know, you call it little man syndrome, but it's ego. And you got in tap with your ego that day and realized that to be an effective referee or official, uh, that's something that's going to have to disappear, at least in that form uh, from your game. Uh, and, and that is one of the reasons you are, if not the best all time, greatest official of all time, we all grew up with you. Um, one of the many reasons. So, what I want to jump into now, and again, we're going to dive into this in different sections. And, and as you said, we'll probably go all over the place, but let's just talk with the basics of officiating. What makes a good official? Uh, you know, Christy's going to get into this too. There's a shortage of officials right now. Uh, what makes a great official and what should somebody be looking into if they want to get into that side of the game? Well, first of all, we love the game. You have to love the game. Um, I have 12 grandchildren. <clears throat> a lot of them play hockey. <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i have uh one uh our oldest grandson is now playing uh, junior a he made the team up in uh, maine uh and uh he's playing uh for ken hodge's uh son ken won two cups with the bruins and and his boy dan is the coach up there uh harrison is just uh, really a a great kid uh and he has skill sets but he also plays the game the right way as a pro style player he uses his body uh, but he's not, uh, not dirty in any sense. Uh, and he's respectful. So as an official, I think respect is a key word. So you love the game. You have to go out there and try and be the very best that you can be. You have to have the aptitude for it. Number one, you have to be able to skate. You have to certainly have to be able to skate backwards. I see officials in the amateur level that sometimes are out of shape. They seem lazy. Uh, and perhaps because there is a shortage of officials, some worked too many games in a row on a particular day. So they're conserving their energy or God forbid, they're just lazy. I think everybody should try and be the very best they can be. I do charity games uh, presently and I still wanna be the best I can be, but I wanna provide the best possible performance for the players on the ice. That's also important. Nobody pays a nickel to come and watch the officials work. That's you have to understand your role within the game. You're not the show. You're not the star. 
but you can enhance the game and you can keep it fair and safe. Safety is a key issue for me. I think it's one of the most important jobs that the officials have, um, especially as the game has evolved and we've seen uh, you know, concussion issues and things of that sort. And they can start at a young age. They just don't happen as kids develop uh, into uh, hitting, uh, body checking uh, levels. Uh, the, the young uh, brain that isn't formed can just be concussed from falling down backwards the wrong way or being whiplashed. Uh, so it's really important that those officials uh, understand just how important their role is in this game uh, to provide safety. And also, key issue, you have to develop relationships within the game. That situation with Wayne Gretzky I described I brought it up for purpose because aside from the fact that I recognized my own deficiencies, I also recognized that I had to develop positive relationships with the players, the coaches, the media, even fans within a game. And I became approachable and I would listen to myself as I was speaking. My body language changed. I controlled the things that were reflex for me that just came up within in a confrontation and would surface. And I was in control of those most of the time. I would take a breath if I felt it start to rise in my temperature, relax, relax the shoulders where you typically carry your stress load. And then this means peace, reps. You're gonna have a conversation with the coach. We don't wanna see this because that's offensive and we never wanna see this. So open hands, peace. Calm voice, monotone, don't yell back, don't curse back. My objective and, and sort of my internal mojo uh, that I learned was successful is to treat disrespect with respect. So I could bring the temperature down in a confrontation based on my body language, my tone, taking control of that situation in a positive way. And here's how I would do it. Might be Rick Tockett young captain of the Philadelphia Flyers, 22 years old. He could skate, he could shoot, he could fight. Very emotional guy as a young player. But he was getting way too many misconduct penalties. And I had a game in the Philadelphia Spectrum one night and talk came out and he's yelling and screaming at me. And I had a decision to make. How can I control this situation to get him refocused on what he should be doing? Open hands, calming voice. I said, Rick, whoa, calm down, please. And I use please a lot, reps. I need to have a conversation with you, but to do so, you gotta calm down. Then I went about to tell him, listen, you're a great player. You can do it all. You can skate, you can shoot, you can fight. Your players respect you, but you can't do it from that penalty box over there where you're spending way too much time with 10 minute talking penalties. I want you to play. I want you to stay on the ice. And you can't play against the third team out here, the guys in the stripes. Play against those other guys. And if you have a question for me, please just come and ask me. We're going to have a conversation about it. We might agree to disagree, but I will always give you an answer. And please, let's do it respectfully. And I could see a light go on in Rick Tockett's head through that conversation. And from that moment on, we developed a relationship. And I did it with so many other players. My phone today is a speed dial of the, some of the greatest players uh, that the game uh, has ever known. Uh, we're still friends. Um, we have golf relationships. 
We do charity events together. And whenever I meet guys, and I just did uh, one at, uh, at Dick's Arena, Dick's Hills in uh, Long Island uh, for Hockey uh, Helps, a 24-hour hockey marathon. I was with Adam Graves, uh, Patty Lafontaine, Stefan Matteau, uh, Benoit Hogue, Colton Orr, uh, and uh, Brian Mullen. And it's like a reunion. And you know what? I'd much rather have it that way, refs, than walking into arena and say, have players or coaches or, or parents, fans say, oh, no, not this guy again. So work on developing <clears throat> productive relationships. But you're dealing with so many different personalities. I, I can't imagine that your philosophy is one size fits all. I would think that you would have to cater it yeah. depending on the personality you're dealing with. Is that true? What a, what a fantastic question. <coughs> Excuse Thank me. You. Allergies. <laughs> it's allergies, folks. No COVID coming through here. I got three I got vaccines. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's a great question. And the, the official has to be bigger than the environment that he's in. It's an emotional game. Get it. Understand it. Talking to coaches. The best way to do it is to set the table early. Whenever a new player came into the NHL in the preseason, rookie season, I would always do my homework. I would check the game sheet before the game, the press notes. And if there was a new player uh, in the league that I hadn't seen yet, the first thing I would do is go up and introduce myself to him. How do you do? I'm Kerry Fraser. Now, this kid might have seen me, you know, referee Stanley Cup finals when he was in diapers. So he knew who I was, but I made him feel like I, I want to wish you the very best. And if you have any questions, please feel free to come and speak to me. So the table was set. Um, I could see sort of, uh, and I would look into people's eyes uh, to, to try and, and see what they're all about. I saw some darkness in some guys' eyes when they came into the league, trust me. Uh, Theo Fleury being one and uh, uh, another player for the New Jersey Devils that uh, spent some time in prison. And uh, I, uh, I looked in those eyes the very first time I saw uh, those individuals and I thought, you got some darkness here. You got to be, uh, you got to be really uh, careful how you deal with them. Um, and we'll share, a, I will share a, a Theo Fleury story uh, as we move along uh, in this conversation that is absolutely impactful for the parents. Um, one of the things I also did uh, following retirement, I worked for TSN up in Canada for a few years. They created a uh, segment on a hockey show called come on ref. And, uh, though, so, um, one of the things that we did, uh, is the NHL players association had an annual, um, best in Canada, 14 year old players. They scouted them the previous year. They're Bantam age players. Uh, Connor McDavid was in that group. Uh, all these kids were going to be first rounders. Uh, we broadcast at TSN their game, uh, coast to coast that they played after the camp was over. Gary Roberts ran it. Uh, they had all kinds of different things. We knew these kids were going to be first picks. They were going to make a lot of money. Uh, and so they wanted to get them started on the right foot. Their parents were there as well. I was asked to speak to the players. I said, I will, only if I can talk to the parents at the same time. Parents have the most influence over their young athletes. My wife and I have seven children. We have 12 grandchildren. 
of the seven kids, three of them got full division one athletic scholarships. They were one boy wrestled in college. Uh, they were really good athletes and they were good students. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. And I've learned along the way about being uh, a better coach and a better parent coach. Uh, when our son played peewee hockey, Bill Barber's boy, uh, Hall of Fame Bill Barber, Philadelphia Flyer, uh, he was still playing and I was still refereeing and, and we would go to the games when we uh, were home. Our wives would sit with all the parents. Bill and I would grab a coffee. We'd stand the farthest away in the corner behind the glass away from the parents. Our wives said to us, what's wrong with you guys? Are you antisocial? Bill said, hey, listen, I'm not standing over there with the parents because they all think their peewee players are going to be NHL players. I don't want to listen to them. I said, they're busy to, uh, yelling at the referees, and I don't want to be associated with that either. So we kind of, as professionals, stayed away. I think that now, uh, and once I retired and I started watching my grandkids, I was called in to separate altercations between parents when these kids were playing peewee hockey. It's absurd. It absolutely is absurd. And I hear the sort of the broad street bully stuff still that lingers uh, in the Philadelphia area with fans where they think their little guys should be playing aggressive and physical. And, and some of the comments that come from the stands are absolutely brutal. And that's one of the reasons that we have a lack of officials because these young kids that are starting out are being abused verbally by adults and by coaches, adult coaches, that they just don't have the skill sets, the kids yet, how to handle them. Uh, why take the abuse for you know being beaten up by an adult verbally uh, when the monetary reward is not that great? So uh, there needs to be some mentoring. There needs to be some coaching. Uh, I speak to level four coaches. Mike uh, has had me to. Uh, uh, coaches clinics uh, with USA Hockey. Uh, and I think that uh, when everybody understands each other's role within the game and how we can work together and cooperate and make it better, because the game is for the kids. That's what we're talking about here at this level now. Not everybody's going to play in the National Hockey League. God, no. But everybody can be developed as a good citizen through sport, learning how to be a good teammate. There's all kinds of social skills uh, that uh, have been developed and my children enjoyed the benefit of it, uh, playing you know, through to high school and then into college at a very high level. Uh, so I think that that's what we're looking at. And now as a parent and a grandparent, I can be proud of the fact that our children are great parents themselves. They are really good citizens in the community. And that started uh, you know, when they were young and it, uh, I give my wife all the credit in the world for, uh, for that end of it. Yeah. yeah, you're right. The verbal haranguing of refs in the stands by parents is just ridiculous. It's, it's driving refs. Out. They're not just aging now, but a lot of the refs are just hanging up the whistle because they don't want the abuse anymore. So what advice would you give to parents when they start to lose it in the stands? Cause they don't like a call that was made. I'd say do the same thing that I did when I had the confrontation with Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. It's a game for the kids. Let them play. Let them have fun. The other thing that, that uh, is uh, inappropriate is the drive from the game 
home afterwards. They might be complaining about the lack of ice time the kid got, complaining about the coach. This is transferred. I can tell you, when I had a coach in the NHL, and there were a few of them that were overboard, over the top, it filtered from the coach to the players. One of the most disciplined teams and the best, one of the best dynasties I ever saw were the New York Islanders when they won four cups. The guy behind the bench, Al Arbor, was amazingly calm. He was disciplined. If he yelled at me, I knew I must have made a mistake because he very seldom yelled. There were other guys like Mark Crawford, emotional guy, yelled all the time. I had an, uh, a major confrontation uh, with Crow in his first year as a coach in the NHL. It was 1995, a strike-shortened year. Uh, players went on strike, and it was towards the end of the season. He was coaching the Quebec Nordiques. Peter Forsberg was a rookie on that team. They had a great team. They moved to Colorado the next year and won the Stanley Cup. They were that good. But Crow was just constantly yelling and screaming at the officials, and it upset and rattled his players. And we had a confrontation towards the end of the season in a game in Florida that he unloaded on me unmercifully with the most profane foul language I think I've ever heard from a coach with a minute left in that game after I gave Peter Forsberg a penalty and they were down by two goals. After the game, and I dealt with it calmly, believe me, my, my, the, my pulse was going. I was twitching my muscles at the bench as I was talking uh, to Crow and, and I uh, treating disrespect with respect, trying to, I told him that that was the most profane thing I'd ever heard. Nobody believed it sitting on the bench, all his players. And I said, but you and I are going to hold that for another time because I need you to put your players on the ice and I need you to do it now, please. I am internal, like my engine is going. I got the adrenaline flowing. Game ends, I'm sitting in the dressing room, knock on the door, open it up. It's Mark Crawford. He said, Kerry, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, come in quick. I said, sit down, have a beer. What's up? He said, I want to apologize. He said, you're absolutely right. You didn't deserve that. But he said, I don't know what's wrong with our team. We're heading in the wrong direction. We're picked to win this thing. And I just don't know what to do. I said, well, let me give you an ex a little you know, counseling, if I may. I told him about Al Arbor and the discipline that he had in his team, the four teams that won the Cups, and they stemmed from that coach behind the bench. And I said, you're rattling your players and blah, blah, blah. So he took that. And I said, now, last thing before you leave, I'm giving you a lifetime career warning. That means that if you ever yell at me again in a game and coaches out there, you probably wait for that referee to say one more word out of you and you're going to get it. Well, I issued Crow, Mark Crawford, a career lifetime warning, one time, all time in that dressing room after the game. He accepted it. We shook hands on it. We had another beer on it. And it was one year later in Anaheim and the Colorado Avalanche were about the same time of the year. Claude Lemieux had joined the abs and Adam Foote broke a stick over a guy's leg in the late stages of a one goal game in Anaheim. And I heard Mark Crawford from 85 feet away as I was going to the penalty bench to assess the, the slashing penalty hear his squeaky voice, and he said, Carrie, what the That's all he got out was the And I wheeled, boom, bench penalty. Career warning, right? So <clears throat> Crow just dropped his head. He knew. 
Claude Lemieux came to me, he said, Gary, look at the score of the time. Just give us one penalty. Don't give us two. I said, you go tell Crow, Florida. He said, Florida, what you talk about? We're in Anaheim. I said, you tell him Florida, he knows all about it. So I'm not trying to suggest that I have to be a hard ass, but the referees need to set a standard. They, you know, if that line is drawn and it's in sand and we've seen it too many times in the playoffs where there are different rules applied at certain times of a game and we use a different rule book in the playoffs versus the regular season. These guys and these young kids are trying their best. And you know what? Every player makes mistakes. Every coach makes mistakes. And these officials are making mistakes. And sometimes when I watch my grandkids, I cringe when I see some of the mistakes that they're making relative to body checks and safety issues. I go into a dressing room after a game and I introduce myself and I just, you know, I, I ask them if I can have a word with them. Uh, I, I'm positive in uh, my uh, dialogue with them and I give them a couple of tips. Um, I think that that's where we have to settle this is that we're all in this game together. I would go to the coaches before the game. I would shake their hand. I'd introduce myself. It was the first time I saw them or whenever, uh, how many times I saw them. And I'd say, coach, you listen, if you have any kind of issue that you can't send through your captain, depending on the age of the players, I'm just ask me to come over. We'll have a quick conversation. It'll be quick. And you may disagree with me, but I'll, I'll be here for you. Let's work together tonight. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, you've hit on, it's like a therapy session, but I think we've hit on so many things, you know, for, for coaches and officials to understand. I think one of the, the confluences here too, is that we have less officials and we're playing more games. So what happens is like these officials are being asked to do, you know, much more. So my, I guess my question to you, Carrie, is like when I, when I do coaching education programs, one of the things I talk to the coaches about, especially those coaches that coach multiple teams is how do you silo out, like, okay, your 10U team had a horrible practice and then your 12U team practices next and you're still all crazy and you transfer that over. And I see that in officials and coaches, you know, what, would, what advice would you give to an official that's doing like a, a weekend tournament? You know, it's game six. They've been coaching, they've been officiating since 6 a.m. and everyone's yelling at them. Maybe they had some good games in there. Maybe it's some of it's self-inflicted, whatever it is. What are some of the things that they can do to kind of, you know, to your point, reset and, and understand that each game is siloed out. And you must see this like in playoffs, right? You're a, you're a, a team of officials and you, how, how hard or how easy is it for you to not carry over from game to game, to game, those emotions and those feelings. That's a great question, Mike. And, and you have to be bigger than yourself. We all have human nature. We like some people, some individuals more than others. Teammates prefer to be with, play with one teammate over another. Some guys don't like each other on a team. That's sad. Uh, and, and coaches have to understand the different personalities of each player and their skill sets. You can't make somebody uh, something they're not. Uh, it drives me crazy when I see a coach that uh, at, at even the high school and, and other levels where they want to play a system of dump the puck and chase it with a skilled set of players. I just did a, a checking for charity uh, charity uh, in the pro level game at the Flyer Skate Zone. It was uh, Johnny Goudreau's team 
uh, against uh, the, the kid that uh, was with the Rangers that uh, they uh, got rid of and he just signed somewhere else. Uh, they were all like NHL or D1 players. The skill sets were incredible. Can you imagine telling a guy like Johnny Goudreau, dump the puck in the corner and chase it? Number one, he'd probably get there before the other guy anyway, but his skill sets are so incredible. And I've seen coaches that think, I'm just going to make them play the old style. That's the way I was raised. That's the way I was coached. And, you know, we've had some good coaches and I, I had a lot of them and I had some that weren't so good. And I've seen coaches that were very good in the NHL. And I've seen some that weren't so good. And I've seen them beat up on certain players uh, that they, you know, they just had such a uh, disrespect for their, their players abilities uh, Justin Williams, uh, in 2005, when we came back from the first lockout and the game had changed with the no hook, no touch, all that sort of thing. Ken Hitchcock was coaching the Philadelphia Flyers. Hitch said, this guy will never play in the NHL. I saw him in the first game and I went, wow, this guy is going to be a stud. He can skate. He can handle a puck. He's got speed. He won three cups after he got traded from Philadelphia and he won a Conn Smythe trophy. Uh, as the uh, best player selected in the Stanley Cup Finals with the LA Kings. So we make mistakes, coaches make mistakes, and there's one just example of a guy that just, you know, had something that he thought this player wasn't going wasn't gonna to perform or have a good career. You know, they traded him for, for a fighter uh, to Chicago, and uh, the rest is history. All right. You know, Kerry, I grew up in the Philadelphia. I'm in the Philadelphia area, and I, I always rue the day that they moved Justin Williams because you could see it immediately after that lockout, and uh, you get a one more in Carolina. I mean, guy had an amazing career, great human being. Yeah. Kerry, I want to tell you a quick story, too, because um, we're going to move into parenting a little bit here. So very quick just build up to this. You know, I, I've played at a high level. I've coached at a high level, and now I'm uh, helping coach an 8U team. So very new territory for me, right? <laughs> But one of the things that I always did throughout my entire career in hockey um, was I subscribed to the philosophy that no one play win or loses you a game. It might look like it does, but it's the, it's the entirety of the game that really is what I focus on. Right. And officiating comes into that. So uh, you, you talked about that show, come on ref. I mean, you've been the subject of that show a few times, uh, some pretty big moments in NHL history, but my attitude was always that, it, you know, refs have the right to make a bad call once in a while too. It's never one thing, right? So after every game, except for a couple, I'll admit that now, I would always shake the referee's hands. Sometimes I had forced myself to do it out of respect because they're on the ice for me too. Uh, you embody, by the way, every single reason to do that. Uh, but I would always do that. Now, where's this story heading? Um, one of my proudest moments in hockey ever. I got a, a text from the head coach of my 8U team. And he said, did, did you know that your son is going up to the opposing team coaches and the guest referees and shaking their hand after every game. And I said, no, <laughs> but you know, I, I had mentioned to him to do that, but I hadn't seen it. Uh, and then last night I was at one of his games and I saw him do it again. And I was, it's not about the goals for me. It's not about the assist. Don't get me wrong. Those are awesome. I'm not telling any parents that you should not be proud if your kid has a great game. That is what I was most proud of is my son without me even prompting him is going up to these people and saying, Hey, great game. I'm writing notes on what you said. Love the game. Respect. Standards. Right? That was the most proud moment for me as his father. Right? And, and really, and, and I've won championships, man. That's one, It's up there with them, Right? We're not doing enough as parents. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's my son that's doing it. 
we are not doing enough as parents to a respect the position of officials, probably the wrong, um, especially like you said, in the Philadelphia area, maybe the wrong standards for our kids. We all grew up loving the flyers here, but that era is long gone. Right. What is it that parents from your point of view need to hear when it comes to officiating and really creating young men and women for life? More of what you just said. That is an amazing story. And when I talked about the example and the parents being, you know, the, the best role models uh, or have the most influence, they can be the worst role models as well. And I'll tell, I'll tell you a, an equal story, a flip side of that one. I had a game in Madison Square Garden years ago. And the first level at MSG, the, the, uh, it's just below board level. There's a, a con- like a metal concourse uh, and then the seats began from there until they've renovated and end of the period and the Zamboni door swings open. And I see this guy father with his young son, probably maybe eight, nine years old, I would estimate. And this father is yelling at me, Fraser, you suck. And the facial expressions and just angry, angry spew. And I looked at the little kid and he's emulating his dad. Fraser, you suck. <laughs> now, Horrible. I couldn't pass on the moment. Yeah. I had, and because you know what? There were so many times that I became the morality police uh, when I refereed games. I said to the, the rink attendant, roll that door back, please. He rolled the door back. Now I'm looking up at this guy and his son. And I said, look at you. I said, what an awful example you're setting for this little man of yours. He's emulating everything that you're doing and showing such disrespect for someone in authority. If you don't like the way I work, that's okay. You're entitled to that. But don't be teaching your son that sort of disrespect. And you know what? The light went on again. I saw it. He recognized it. And, you know, even for a New Yorker, he didn't tell me to go, you know, f myself. So uh, I guess I, I won the won the conversation and the battle that night. I, I had um, many uh, opportunities to do that sort of thing and even address fans after the game. And that was the premise for my book because I would go into a, uh, you know, I was fairly recognizable. I had no helmet on, and you know, I, people knew who I was when we walked into an establishment. Nice uh, hair to eat. Yeah. Like, well, I didn't want to go there. But, you know, <laughs> Still has I need a cut right now. Yeah. I got to get her cut. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I'd see people staring at me and the, you know, the, 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 and, you know, I always sat with my back to the wall, but I, and I'd survey the room <laughs> and I'd walk over and I would extend my hand. You know, this handshake means a lot. Introduce myself. And I would say, do you have a question at, about the game tonight? And typically the first one was a little hot. And you, yeah, I got a question for you that time. Blah, blah, blah. And I'd answer the question and I'd say, do you have another one? Now, you maybe just heard how I said that. Do you have another one? Not. And what else? Do you have another one? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. When you were talking to, you know, Gretzky or you were talking to Sather or whatever, uh, what were you guys talking about? And I recognized, and I'd answer it. And before long, you know, before three questions, they were buying me a beer and we became friends. But I recognized that the fans in this really emotional supercharged game 
the best place seat they can get is one row behind the glass. They want on the other side. They want inside my world. And to be able to share that, you know, the, the NHL has done a great job with, uh, uh, and their broadcast uh, right holders, 30 for 30, inside the game, stuff like that, where fans really get a glimpse uh, of what goes on. Uh, some of it is scripted, but most of it is, is just, you know, let it roll. Uh, so that uh, really taught me a, a good lesson. Uh, communication, again, it's all about communication, moms and dads, and how you communicate with your body language, with your verbiage, uh, with the way that you uh, drive your, your young athlete home after the game can all have a positive or a negative effect. Listen to yourself like I did on the ice. I would stop in the middle of a confrontation sometimes because God, there's no nail holes in these hands. And if I got a little overcharged and it didn't stop here, whoop, out it came. I have stopped in mid-sentence because I heard myself and I went, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. Let me start all over again. I apologize. So there's nothing wrong with saying you're sorry. You're going to make mistakes, but, but just... I encourage you to listen to yourself, have your own game plan as a parent, no differently than the coach. What is your game plan? What is your objective? What do you want to create here? Are you looking for an NHL player? Good luck with that. Maybe you got one, but I can tell you there's always somebody better and head up to Canada and you'll see, you know, kids that I was 15 months old when I started skating, not years, months. Wow. I would go to my dad's pro hockey practices and the trainer would put on my skates and I'd go out before the players came out. So I grew up on skates. Um, I'm just suggesting that what you need to create are really good young people, citizens. Uh, bullying, I don't go for at all. Uh, never did. Uh, and that, as a player, I, you know, I told you how I took care of that. And on the ice, from a morality perspective, I've had players trash talk another guy. I had two guys come to me with tears, one rolling down his cheeks, the other with tears in his eyes. The tears in the eye guy was Theo Fleury. The rolling down the cheek was Claude Lemieux. And they were trash talked and it affected them. It hurt them personally. And I took charge of that situation uh, in a uh, very unique way, uh, forcing the player asking first, uh, to apologize to the individual uh, for what they said. And this was at a stoppage of play in the Claude Lemieux situation. And it was at the start of the next period uh, for the uh, Theo Fleury Tyson Nass situation. And before we end this, please let me share with you the Theo Fleury Tyson Nash story because it is powerful and it is incredible for parents, fans to understand uh, where this thing went. Yeah, let's hear it <laughs> yeah let's jump into it now but and before we do look uh, i i think it's recommended reading for all parents not necessarily kids to read theo theory flurry's book uh, playing with fire it is a very heavy yeah. book but it is an important book uh for all parents to read i highly recommend that as much as i recommend your book sir but yeah let's jump into the the theo flurry story right now um i don't like to swear so i'm going to paraphrase uh this is coming from uh Theo Fleury, uh, in my book, uh, The Fury of Fleury, uh, Calgary Flames. That's uh, 
Theo autographed that, by the way. And uh, he said, uh, Carrie, thanks for including me in your book, Hatchet Buried, November 2011. But here's what he said to me, April 19th of 1996, in game two, first round, Stanley Cup playoffs between Calgary Flames and Chicago Blackhawks. And this comes from Theo's book, Playing With Fire. I quote, I'm going to effing kill you. I don't care who you effing think you are. Let's meet outside in the parking lot, you effing shitbag. Fraser immediately gave me a 10-minute misconduct, throwing me out of the game. It was too much. I took my helmet off and threw it at him. Theo Fleury playing with fire. Now, put yourself in that situation, parents. You're me. You just called a penalty on a guy. He goes bananas on you. He talks to you like that. How do you respond? You get your fists up. The adrenaline is going to flow through you. You're going to be highly energized, as I was. But I had to be professional. I had to control that emotion, that negative emotion that was rising up inside me. My muscles were twitching. It's the old fight or flight, and I was never a flyer. I was a fighter. And my leg was twitching with that helmet sitting at my skate. I wanted to kick it back in his face. <sighs> Took a breath, which I encourage you to do. Relax your shoulders. I threw him out of the game. Just another incident with Theo Fleury. And we know uh, now what Theo was all about and the difficulties he had in his young life as a tremendous player in Canada at the junior A level with a coach that was a pedophile. Uh, I'm going to fast forward four years. Now, this is still in my memory banks. I got a memory like a steel trap, but you had mentioned, how do you process that? I don't hold grudges. Uh, I certainly know who's the problem on the ice from their what they've shown me over the course of their career. Uh, that would just be silly if I didn't. And I watch certain players more closely, uh, but I don't hold grudges. So four years later, fast forward, and it is December 20th of 2000. Theo Fleury had signed an $8 million free agency contract with the New York Rangers, but he didn't start the season. They put him in the substance abuse program the NHL has. He comes back. The St. Louis Blues and uh, coached by Joel Quenville are playing that night at Madison Square Garden, Theo's first game back. And Tyson Nash, second year pro uh, with the St. Louis Blues, trash talking guy, wore a loose helmet, shaggy hair. If he got touched, he'd flip his head back, flip the helmet off, and he'd drop penalties. He was a pain in the butt uh, for, uh, for the refs. <laughs> but I tell you, at the end of this first period in Madison Square Garden, Theo Fleury, the same guy that trash-talked me, cursed at me, threw his helmet at me, came to me with tears in his eyes. He said, Kerry, I'm trying to clean my life up honest. I haven't done coke in 30 days. I haven't had anything to drink in X number of days. I'm trying to clean my life up honest. Don't let him talk to me like that. Now, human nature, parents, fans, how are you going to feel if you're me in this situation? Are you going to say looks good on you? Remember, like, four years ago back in Chicago, what you said, what you did. But instead, I saw a wounded human being in front of me, like one of my kids. I wanted to take his pain away. And quickly, I said, Theo, if I can get Tyson Nash back here at the start of the next period, right here between the two benches on the red line, and he gives you a sincere apology, will you accept it like a man? He said, yes, I will. I followed with if I get him here, promise you won't break your stick over his head. He said, I promise. 
I went right past my referee's room into the visiting coach's room to Joel Quayle, who's a great guy. I said, Joel, this is what Tyson Nash, your guy, said to Theo Fleury. Joel rolled his eyes. He said, do you want me to tell him to take his gear off? He thought I was going to throw him out of the game. I said, how about an apology? It certainly should be good for Theo, and it probably might not even hurt your guy. He said, great idea. He ran out of the room into his player's dressing room. I'm standing with Theo at the red line between the two benches for the start of the next period. Out come the St. Louis Blues out of the Zamboni entrance, and Tyson looks like he's going to do a skate by. I flagged him over. I said, Tyson, do you have something to say to this man? Tyson was affected by this. His lip was quivering. He looked Theo right in the eyes. He said, Theo, I am sincerely sorry. I went way below the line, and I apologize for what I said, and I wish you all the best in everything you have ahead of you. He tapped him on the shin pad. I went, Theo, are you good with that? He said, I'm good with that. I said, boys, shake hands. Let's play. The game ended. Tyson Nash did what he normally does. He, he got Brown to jump him in the third period. He got extra penalty minutes. St. Louis Blues win the game. Now, I'm going to fast forward 10 more years to when I retire. And I finish my last game, and I have to sit down, and I've got to write this thing. And Theo's book came out. And one of my objectives, and this is one that you should maybe try and follow. I want to take a bad situation and try and make something positive from it. Negative to positive. So Theo's book comes out and he writes that trash story. And the only ref he, he really trashed in the book was me. Uh, one of the things he said, there's not enough mustard to put on that hot dog. And uh, so I wanted to take this situation in his book and I wanted to bring it to a positive resolution. So I called Tyson Nash. I said, hey, Tyson, Kerry here. You remember the situation with Theo back in uh, uh, December 20th of uh, 2000? Uh, I'm writing a book and I need your permission for, uh, to write a story. Ladies and gentlemen, the phone went dead. It was quiet. Tyson said, Kerry, that was a life-altering situation. It was career-changing. Now, this is 10 years after the fact. I said, talk to me. Tell me about it. I got him to write it in his own words. In my book is, is exactly how I put it in. And I must tell you, uh, it's pretty powerful. And I want to share it with you. I need you to listen to this. And I really need you to put yourself in this situation as a parent. And I want you to think about your young athlete and the guidance that you might be giving him. Or for you coaches, the guidance that you're giving your players. This is from Tyson Nash. When I first started playing hockey, I was actually pretty decent and had the ability to put the puck in the back of the net. But as I traveled on in my career, I realized, and certain coaches helped me realize, if I was going to make the NHL, I needed to play a certain way. I, of course, didn't always agree with them, but I listened, and I'm thankful, so thankful I did because of the career I ended up having. Coach Quenville gave me an opportunity and a role on a great NHL team. When I first got called up to the NHL after four years in the minors, I knew this might be my only chance to show what I can do. I ran around and hit everything that moved and smiled and laughed the whole game through and in many more after that, for I was living my dream and I was playing in the NHL. Coach Quenville told me that I needed to be the most hated man in hockey and bring that smile and energy to every game. And as long as I did, that I would be a St. Louis Blue. The rest was history. From that day, I would do whatever I had to do to stick in the league. I would hit 
anything and anyone. I would yell and chirp and do whatever, whatever I could do to get the upper hand or drop penalties. After all, we had the best power play in the league. And in fact, we had a stat sheet for penalties drawn, which of course I dominated. At least I could say I was good in one stat column. I'm pretty sure I was a rest nightmare, always in the middle of everything, and it just escalated from there. It was a tough role to assume because it wasn't really who I was. I consider myself a pretty nice guy who off the ice hates controversy, but on the ice I had to do something totally opposite or I would be gone. I was given a job and I wanted to be great at it no matter what or who stood in my way until on a particular night. Before a game against the Rangers, everyone talked and gossiped. And in the heat of the moment, I said some things that I typically never do and got personal. I was frustrated with Theo Fleury. And in the heat of the moment, I attacked him as a person. Obviously, Theo was a very fiery guy and it didn't take much to get him. But instead of fire him up, I apparently struck a chord emotionally and he approached Terry Fraser about it. And well, that was a huge wake up call for me that certain things are offsides no matter how bad you want to win the game. After that, I never went after someone's personal life, and I have Fraser to thank for playing dad in this one. Dad, I'm a referee. That stuck with Tyson, not just 10 years past when, the, when I spoke to him, but even to this day. Theo, Tyson, and myself speak at corporate outings, uh, various uh, youth camps, etc. That story is told and it keeps coming back to me. One player at a, uh, that went to a, uh, uh, an alumni camp, uh, three of them in one year, heard that same story from all three of us from the different perspective of each guy. So parents, coaches, you wanna make a positive difference? or you want to be a negative influence, you can make that choice. And folks, we can do something simple every day. Every day we can have an opportunity to change somebody's attitude that maybe they're having a bad day, opening a door, saying, I'm sorry, an apology. This was just an apology in a game, in between periods at the National Hockey League level. And look at the byproduct. Look at the benefits that were gained just from that simple apology and doing the right thing. I encourage you to do the same. That is a great story, Carrie. And it, again, transcends multiple decades, which is even more amazing, you know, and <clears throat> just uh, following up on that. And then I want to jump to Mike and Christy for final questions. Um, you know, funny one for you as, as a coach, um, you know, before the games, I'd always have a stick of gum in my pocket and I'd always invite the ref over. I'd say, Hey man, you want to stick a gum? And you know, Eight out of 10 times, I guess, what, my breath stink? I guess, I don't know. I'm just offering you a stick and go. But I did it to break the tension, right? Uh, it, that was kind of my way of putting my hands up. And like, listen, the game hasn't started yet. You got your job to do. You know, we might disagree, but I just want you to know I'm not, I'm not, you know, peace, right? So I wanted to know, you just gave some great advice to parents. What advice or tips and tricks, again, I'm saying that kind of jokingly, do you have for coaches before a game? What, what would you like to see as an official uh, coaches do prior to a game? Uh, to interact with an official just to kind of build that respect and build that relationship if they're capable of it. You know, the NHL uh, at one period uh, of the uh, four decades that I was in the league, um, they, uh, the league said, 
let's try and have the coaches have a meeting in the officials room, both coaches at the same time uh, to establish some communication before uh, it goes out and gets hot on the ice. Um, that worked for a little bit. It got a little bit monotonous, uh, but it was good for individuals in the, in the striped jerseys that often didn't communicate very well with the coaches. It forced them to have a face-to-face -face in a non-confrontational way uh, and sort of set the table. Uh, it never got into a session where the coaches were complaining about, you know, the other guy last night, I had this or I had that. Um, but I think it's really important uh, that the officials do the same thing that you did. Uh, you need to, uh, I had a game one time when I was uh, just coming up, it was in the Central Pro League uh, and it was uh, uh, the Los Angeles Kings farm team. And Charlie Simmer was playing there uh, and Terry Murray, who uh, ended up winning the cup with, uh, with the uh, Flyers. And I absolutely stunk. And I had to stay there. It was in Salt Lake City and I had to stay there for like a day off. And then the next game, I was afraid to come out of my hotel room. I was brutal and I felt terrible about it. And I ended up uh, giving Simmer, Charlie Simmer, I think it's the only 10-minute uh, misconduct he ever got in his career. We joked about it. Uh, so uh, Jack Tex Evans, really a big, tough uh, former uh, Chicago Blackhawk and, and uh, NHL player in the original six was the coach there. And before that game, I walked over to his coach's room. I knocked on the door. He opened the door. I said, Mr. Evans, I want to apologize for my performance uh, a night ago. I said, I was absolutely brutal. I'm going to give you the very best I've got to give tonight. Uh, and uh, just want you to, uh, it, I wanted him to know that I wasn't arrogant. I wasn't, I was brutal and I admitted it and I apologized for it. And now tonight, you're going to see a different performance. I'm going to give you the very best, both teams, that I've got to give. So I think personalities, we all have different personalities. And that's another buzzword. Uh, parents, you have a different personality as well. Uh, so that uh, how you manage your personality is really important. Think about your objective. Every opportunity is uh and situation is an opportunity to score a goal for good or to put one up for the bad side and i recognized that uh throughout my career uh after some challenges and some tribulations uh and making sure that i kept things in check that weren't positive or productive in the environment and in the situation that i was in in that moment every situation is different you might have to, uh, you might be accosted uh, in, on the street in this crazy world that we live in today. A handshake might not do it for you. You've got to defend yourself, perhaps, uh, if diplomacy won't work. And I encourage diplomacy all the time because you never know. Uh, but that's where you have to be bigger and, and think more uh, of the end game. What do you want to accomplish? What is your objective? What is your goal? And uh, I think if you think that through uh, in the moment, think it quickly, uh, make that quick decision like I did with Theo Fleury on the ice, uh, that uh, I'm not here to pay you back, man. I'm here to help you. I want to be a positive influence for you in this moment of time when you're in trouble.
Make sense? Total sense. You know, Brian Murray was a coach of the Washington Capitals, and Murray in 82, he was getting bench penalties. He was so emotional. He'd stand on the bench. He'd flap his arms. He had, God rest Brian's soul. I love him. Uh, but he had that funny lisp. He sounded like Daffy Duck when he talked. And uh, one game in the cap center, he was standing up screaming and flapping his arms and spitting and yelling at me. And he got more bench penalties than any other coach in the league at the time. And I thought, you know what? I got to go over there and find out what this guy is thinking. Like, I got to see if we can do something beyond a bench penalty. So I went over and with him. He's up on the bench. Jesus, Harry, what are you doing? <laughs> and I put the hands up and I went, Brian please. I said, calm down, get off the bench. I'd love to have a conversation with you, but you got to calm down, man. Boom. He came right down to my level, my voice inflection. I said, now you may not agree with what I'm going to tell you, but this is the reason I did or didn't make the call. He thought for a second, he went, well, you're right about one thing, Carrie. I don't agree with what you said, but thanks for coming over and talking to me. Well, in his post-game uh, media uh, conference, he brought up, this is the first time that a referee ever came to the bench and explained something to me, whether we agree or disagree, at least that's all I ever wanted to know was to get an answer. There were times when you'd have to send, and the rule book says, Mike can attest to this, that any uh, messages have to be sent through the captain. I always found that the captain never delivered the message that I gave him. <laughs> It never happened. I wonder why. So I would prefer, no, yeah, exactly. So I would prefer <laughs> to communicate directly with you, coach, because yeah. then you're going to get the message. Now, when I put myself in, in that position at the bench, I better control the temperature. I better control myself because just like with Mark Crawford, me putting myself at that bench, there was no way I would give him any coach a bench penalty when I'm there. I've got to eat whatever it is or get away quickly. So I think that the communication and reps is really important. Control it, make it quick, be respectful, treat disrespect with respect, and you'll bring that temperature down. Even if you have to say, coach, whoa, please, that's not appropriate. Can we have a conversation? Solicit their cooperation and then have that convo. You may not agree with me, but this is it. And let's move on. You have dumbfounded Mike and Christy. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I'd put you guys to sleep. I'm just, I'm just excited. I'm just excited about it. I got like a, a million notes here on sound bites I'm taking from this uh, <laughs> podcast. But I, I think, you know, Carrie, I think ultimately what we all talk about, right, is that if you want good officials in the game, you've got to have you've got to be a good person right. to the officials. Why would you drive away the good people that are doing that giving us the opportunity to play? And I see that on, I mean, I remember last year, my son's lacrosse had, had games canceled over and over and over because it just wasn't an official to officiate the game. This isn't limited to hockey. For and sure. Yeah, it's everything. Football, yeah. Christy said it with football and hockey is I see, you know, when you have 18 games in a weekend in one rink and there's only, there's only nine officials, what are you going to get? So if you want to get right. the good officials and keep the good officials, we as coaches and players and parents, we, and, and Carrie, you said this, we're all, we're all here together to, to, to develop the sport and be, and it goes to the officials too, right? You can't just be, well, you know, I'm not going to communicate either. It all goes right. both ways, but I think 
ultimately, like what I try to tell my players and parents is, well, guys, ultimately, the official has all the power. So let's let, let's make sure that we're communicating with them in a positive way so that we can at least influence that power to help us. And I think because because like you said, there's not many people that, you know, obviously at your level, Carrie, at the NHL, there's probably a lot more officials like you than not as far as being able to learn from you and communicate to the, the, to these, you know, these personalities that are larger in life, but at the youth level, we're all bad. We're bad coaches with bad players and we probably don't have the best officials. I mean, we did, it is what the level of, of the, of the play is. Right. And I think, you know, just embracing the fact that we have the opportunity to have officials out there to your point, be safe first, you know, keep the rules in check, but be respectful. I think it just goes such a long way. And it's a message. I think that, um, you know, in the heat of the moment, maybe a lot of us miss. Well, mentoring is really important. Mentoring is crucial. So ego, you know, we talked about that early. Um, Some of the, the officiating managers, coaches, supervisors, you've got to, you've got to not make it about you and you've got to make it about, the, the official that you're trying to mentor and help. And sometimes I walk into situations where I hear sort of the bloviating, uh, you know, chest puffed out with, well, this is the way I took care of that guy. And, and you know, it, it just doesn't fly. Um, I put questions to officials. I want, I want them to think for themselves. I want to teach them how to think the game. And when you had a situation over there, uh, what, what did you see from that sight line? What do you think would be a better position to be in? And, you know, for officials, the biggest thing is be in the right place to get the right sight line. I developed a positioning philosophy in 1983 or four uh, that was adopted by Canadian Hockey Association, still is in their, in their books, uh, officiating books. USA Hockey's used some of it um, because I was – I had to develop something. I was five foot seven and a half, and there's no way I could see over or around players. I had to develop a, a sense, a skill set, like the great players that knew not where the game or the puck was now, but where it was going to be three moves down the chessboard. So I would never try to be in a blocked, stationary, stagnant position. And that's what drives me crazy when I see players work or officials uh, that work lazy, not just at amateur level but at the NHL level and they, they replay obviously shows that they couldn't have seen it properly because they didn't move in advance of the play. They're not seeing the ice like Gretzky did, like Mario Lemieux did, uh, like Sidney Crosby does, uh, that, that development of a skill set uh, that you can actually develop. I know I did. Uh, and I kind of knew the game pretty well as a player, but boy, as an official, you got to, you got to change. Uh, players attack right. the puck. Officials well, I, retreat I, from the puck. I was curious about that, Carrie, because you're so masterful at that. And I know we have a lot of up and coming refs listening right now. So, how do you develop? It's almost like you have a sixth sense because you want to give players enough room to play. You don't want to get in their way, but you also have to be in that position where you can accurately make that call. So, I mean, how do you how do you get there? Yeah, great question. And I learned it. Uh, and developed it watching a video of Wayne Gretzky in 1983. And uh, Wayne was approaching a D-man from the neutral zone just before the blue line. Those two guys in the camera, D-man and and Wayne with the puck on his stick. 
and he's looking straight ahead at the D-man. All of a sudden, Wayne threw a behind-the-back no-look pass to the right side. Yuri Curry streaking into camera frame, full speed, never broke stride, boom, tape-to-tape pass. I went, how did Wayne Gretzky know that Yari Curry was going to be in that place at that moment without a look? And I came up with a philosophy that he did little checks with his eyes, the camera, your camera's always moving and it's picking things up all over the place. And you're looking at, for me, the player's speed, their direction, their body language as to what they're going to do. And I would be able to determine that in uh, in the moment, the player with the puck might not be in a foul position. Nobody's around him within X number of feet. But in three clicks of my camera frame, I know that that guy moving at that speed and that direction on the pursuit is going to be there. And I need to re- now refocus and boom, I look at that. So I saw the game ahead of when it was going to be played. I could be on the goal line with one referee with a great Edmonton Oilers team with all those future Hall of Famers on the power play. Paul Coffey would get the puck behind the net. I would be as deep as the deepest four checker is where I would be on that on that uh, power play. They would put Mess or Gretz at the blue line. At the far end would be uh, Glenn Anderson and then Gretz would usually float into the middle. So here's what happened. Coffey came around the net. He pressed down on his stick when he got around the corner, I knew he's going to pass it. That's his body language. I know the outlets because I've already seen who's at the blue line. We had a, at that point, the red line was in play for an offside pass. So with Anderson at the far end, far blue line, the only way he could be onside to receive a pass is if the guy at the blue line with his stick on the other side of the blue line touched the puck and did a one-touch pass, just let it run down the ice. If I'm watching that and I say in my brain and I'm doing play by play in my brain, coffee has the puck. He's behind the net. Okay. He comes out. He's got a pass. He presses down. Boom. He passes the puck. There it goes. And Oh, he's touched it at the blue line. Oh, it's down at the far red line or far blue line. If I don't move, I've already had my brain in gear. As soon as he came around that net and he's pressed down, and I know the outlets, I've already crossed over and I'm moving. I'm following that puck before or as he releases it because I now have to blast down there because I've got to catch it at the far blue line because I want to be at the goal line when that play happens. That's how you can do it. I had a referee school uh, for 13 years uh, in Calgary. I came up with some innovative kinds of things to have referees develop their sense of awareness. I put, and uh, Canadian Airlines uh, was one of the uh, sponsors of us at the time, and I got those masks that you wear when you fly transatlantic so you could sleep. I got all these referees lined up on the, on the goal line. I had their masks up. I said, take a look at the setup here. We've got a player at the point each side. We've got a guy in the slot. We've got a guy over there. I'm going to put your masks down. You're going to pass the puck. You see who's got the puck on their stick before you mask down. Now, you see that play with your eyes closed, your eyes blocked, and you hear that puck moving, and you follow the path, but you see it in your head where that puck's moving. It sounds crazy, but 
Then I had the players start mask up and everybody's following because they hear the puck go whoosh, whoosh, on the stick, on the stick. Then I had them, okay, we're going to put some action. Guys are going to be skating. You're going to still see the faces and the numbers of those players, but they're going to be moving and the puck is going to be moving with them to different players. You've got to differentiate with, you know, the blind ref, right? You're going to differentiate who has the puck and who has not with the other sounds that are going on. So it was incredible how these guys developed a sense and used all of their senses because now they're seeing the play in their brain and they're having to think in advance as that guy's skating, where is he? Where's the puck? And that's exactly uh, what, what I had to do as a ref. When there was a shot from the, the far point and I'm on the goal line, I would drift back just a little bit because if it deflected off the goalie and it goes between my legs, I know based on the speed it's moving, whether it's going to go high up the wall or whether it's going to stay in the corner, the cavalry's coming. Players are attacking the puck. If I look down to see where the puck is, and then I look up, it's too late. They're already on me. I'm trapped. Now I'm fighting players for space on the ice and also the ability to see things. And I can't possibly make a good judgment when everything is closed in on me. Yeah, I think I, I think one of the things I learned I, I, that I love about you know good officials, like the ones that really you could tell, to me, an official cares when they're in position. Like even if they make, the, even if the call's the wrong call and they're emphatic that it's a goal, it's a goal, then I know okay they they're selling it. And I think that that one is like ah maybe it's a goal. I don't know. Like, don't I don't care if you're wrong be emphatic, but be in the right position. And I have nothing to say. I'm like, well, what am I going to say? We don't, there's no replay at eight U hockey. Just go with it. Mike, you're, you, you're, you don't you're, like goal calls from the blue line. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Well, it's a, it's the, it's the fly. It's the, it's the fly by off size that I hate. It's like, no, it's good. Right. I'm like, good. You're, you're, right. I don't know where you are. So, but I think that to Kerry's point though, that says so much about even a bad official that's in good positions, at least is showing effort right. and is working their butt off to be in the right position if they make the wrong call, they make the wrong call. I, I, I've had officials come to me and say, well, I know that was off. That was off sides. I apologize. I made the wrong call, but the line change you made on that last shift, that was brutal too. What were you thinking? <laughs> you know, like, why'd you put that centerman out there against that centerman? That's the wrong play. So I think, you know, I think that's where that communication, that talking back and forth, the ability to, you know, have confidence as an official. And, but, but to Kerry's point, you can't build confidence in young kids if you don't have good mentors, if you don't have somebody that says, listen, Michael, my 14 year old, I'm going to, I'm going to have your back. I'm going to make sure I introduce you to the coaches. I'm going to tell them how long you've been refereeing, where your status is, why you're here. Cause you love being out here and you want to help their kids. And I think that lowers the tone and a referee is going to be like, it's almost like when you have, you know, a trainee at, you know, at a store or, or, or introduces, Hey, uh, this person's here, you know, working with me today. Just know that they're new and they're trying their hardest and they know the rules, but we're going to work together. All of that kind of stuff at the beginning kind of sets the table and it gives you an opportunity uh, to, to have success. And I love that. I love the ability to say, you know, get good mentors, communicate, be, be approachable. And, and I think that the biggest part really, and Kerry, your success obviously just exudes because of your personality and your ability to say, okay, I'm Kerry Frazier. I can do whatever the heck I want here, you know? So I'm going to, but I'm going to officiate like it's my first game and, and I'm going to officiate like 
it's my job to give you my best. And I love that. Well, we want to get it right. And I'll tell you, try to give you a real quick analogy because it just, it just doesn't happen at the amateur level, the lowest levels. And we went into the two referee system and guys moved up really quickly. They, you know, they wanted to fit. They wanted to, they wanted to be uh, recognized. And so the thing that used to drive me nuts is if I'm 10, 15 feet away from a play and, and I see something and I, I shake my head no and I hear a whistle from 100 feet away, it used to drive me nuts. And the players were, you know, driven nuts as well. Anyway, um, we had a situation happen in a game in uh, uh, Colorado and uh, St. Louis Blues were playing and I always do my homework beforehand. I got the game sheets and I see that there was a player for St. Louis that was on the bubble, meaning if he got an instigator penalty, instead of just two and 10 and five, he would get a game misconduct because he had accumulated X number of instigator penalties and he would be automatically suspended for one game. So my young referee partner who happened to be a French kid, uh, I said before the, you know, as we go out, listen, if there's a fight and this guy's involved, let's make sure if it's an instigation penalty considered, he's got to earn it. We don't want to, we don't want to give him a, you know, a soft touch here. He's got to earn it. Let's be sure. Okay. So we go out with, uh, less than two minutes, 30 seconds left in the first period, a fight breaks out. A secondary fight breaks out almost simultaneously with it. I've got the first flight fight because I'm down low. The second fight involved this guy that was on the bubble for St. Louis. We confer after peace is restored. And my referee partner said, uh, the guy there, he's got an uh, instigator penalty. I said, that's the guy. Are you sure? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I say, he, but I, I, you know, I can't do two things at once, uh, but I, out of the corner of my eye, I just kind of saw the, you know, it looked more spontaneous to me. We go into the dressing room. So oh, I give him a, you know, two minutes uh, for instigation, a game misconduct and five for fighting. The other guy gets five for fight. It didn't sit right with me. We go into the dressing room and I said, would you show me what the guy did? like the two combatants he said well uh, one guy pushed this guy and the other guy pushed that guy back and they push and push and then uh, the st louis guy uh, drops his gloves and they fight i said that's it well you drop his gloves first i said well somebody has to drop their gloves first long story short it was not an instigator now we have in the dressing room the red phone and it went right to toronto i picked it up and i i had uh uh, Mike Murphy, uh, vice president of hockey ops on the line. I said, Mike, we got a problem here. I said, uh, I think it, and I didn't want to sell my guy out, but I said, we had a language communication problem uh, out on the ice. There's no way that that was an instigator. He said, well, I'm glad you said that because I had both, you know, uh, Dougie Armstrong and, and uh, Jim Nill, the general manager for Colorado, both called me. And they want to know what the heck's going on. I said, Mike, we can fix this. He said, how? I said, what I would suggest is I bring the two GMs down here, get word to them. And I tell the guy with St. Louis to get his equipment back on. We thank God they didn't score on the, on the two minute power play. There was 30 seconds ticked off it. I said, we take that two minute penalty off. We put the guy back in the game. Uh, he's going to get five for fighting. And, we play on. 
He said, great idea. So I took the, I went out and I had to make the announcement that there was, you know, an error on the play. Uh, the two minute penalty uh, is rescinded. Uh, players get five minutes each for fighting so that the media knew what was going on. And I mean, the right thing was done, highly unorthodox, but you had to do what was right. And uh, so that happened at, at the NHL level. And then following that, we've seen where players have been put in the penalty box and then they've been taken out of the penalty box. So uh, I, I guess it was a little ahead of the curve. You know, <clears throat> Kerry, what I love about you is always your pursuit to get it right. And I think that, at, especially at the NHL level, you know, people forget that the officials work just as hard as the players to be the best they can be at what they do. So to round out this episode, I've been taking notes the whole episode because um, you were just so well-spoken. You always have been. Uh, but I wanted to repeat these for the audience because we've been going over the things that kind of make a good official. And it's not surprising to me that these are echoed with how to be a great coach, how to be a great player at the highest levels. Number one, love the game. Everyone we've interviewed has said that, right? Two, respect. Three, have high standards. Four, communicate. Have good communication. And you didn't say this one directly, but the last one is character, which you are just, you have unbelievable character. Anybody who listens to you speak or reads your book can see that, that, you know, there's a reason you're the best of the best, right? So again, love the game, respect standards, communication, character. I also love the uh, treat disrespect with respect. These are common themes at the top level, players, coaches, and officials. So if you're a parent or a coach, these are the life skills you need to teach. Again, talent is important. Tactics are very important. I'm, I've never, ever excused that. But if you don't have this other missing piece, the type of person you are, the bond that you create with your team, it doesn't matter. You're not going to succeed uh, long-term as a human being. I should say that. Kerry, uh, you've been an unbelievable guest. I've loved every minute of this. Uh, I want to tell everybody again, it's required reading. If you're serious about this game, it's required reading that you read the final call. Uh, we will absolutely link it with this podcast. Uh, it is an amazing, uh, amazing stories, I should say. And, and it's, it's written by a scholar without lack of any other word there. But Carrie, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. It is always wonderful to talk to you. Well, it is my honor and, and privilege uh, to be part of uh, this great game for as long as I was. And uh, that we can all, uh, I can't stress enough, that we can all make a difference, folks, uh, in our world uh, presently. That, that needs us to uh, take up a banner and be respectful, whether it's road rage. Uh, we don't know what the other person's dealing with in their lives. Uh, and rather than confront and go after and be aggressive back, you know, it takes, it takes a bigger person and it takes that breath and the relax of the shoulder sometimes uh, just to say, is this really that important to me? No, go ahead go ahead you go you go ahead so thanks thanks for all that you guys do uh in the education and of, of players uh of of coaches uh and uh fans slash parents well, thank you carrie it's been our pleasure and that is a wonderful message to leave it on we can all have a little bit more empathy for each other work together we're in this human race together. It's not a race, really, right? It's just the species. So Exactly. That's going to do it for this edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. For Christy Casciano, Burns, Mike Vanilli, and Kerry Frazier, I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Remember, you can hear all of our episodes at OurKidsPlayHockey.com or basically wherever podcasts can be heard. We're everywhere. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Enjoy your hockey, and we'll see you next time.